So there's two types of entrepreneurs. I call them pedigree entrepreneurs and non-pedigree entrepreneurs. Okay. So if you're a pedigree entrepreneur, it's much more easier for you to raise money. And those entrepreneurs can even raise money with a PowerPoint. That's as plain as that. It might sound like super unfair. That's how it works. Hello, hello, hello. Good evening good morning good afternoon wherever you are in the world and we're here for a brand new social convos i'm shaluk this is diego let's uh kick things off diego what's up yeah i think we should have started with you know buenos dias buenas noches and buenas tardes because ah. we're going latin today yeah. and, no, Espanol. that's also the extent of my spanish <laughs> uh, our, our guest is fluent in it but unfortunately we cannot continue the conversation in spanish so we will do it in English, so don't worry about that. But today we have with us someone born and raised in Peru, and his name is Enzo Capali. He's really young, just 25, uh, and he has a background in economics, and he's really active in the startup space. Just a few years ago, he moved from Peru to Mexico because, you know, the startup venture capital world in, I guess, Latin America. I think we say, see that as well in Suriname, kind of us lacking, and we'll let him tell us more about how that is going. But we'd like to welcome uh, Enzo Cafali to Social Convos. And you, as you see on his shirt, he's also has his own startup podcast <laughs> and blog called Startup Startupable. Before the call, we had a quick, uh, you know, debate on what the pronunciation is. So Enzo, welcome to Social Convos and correct our pronunciation, please. <laughs> Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, I mean, you can pronounce it whatever you want. It depends on where you, you speak Spanish or English and where you're from also. So it could be startupable, 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 like me most Mexicans say. So yeah, it varies a lot. Awesome, awesome. So yeah, that means that you are big into startups or at least not only for yourself, but you help out other entrepreneurs as well in Latin America, in the region. So I do have to ask the question. Before we started, I mean, I jumped in. I said, I'm going to jump in 20 minutes before the call. I jumped in 10 minutes before the call. I tried to do 10,000 things at the same time. And it made me wonder about the excuses that entrepreneurs have for not getting something done. So you speaking to a lot of entrepreneurs, what are kind of the, 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 the biggest excuses that we as entrepreneurs use when it comes to business? Oh, that's a great question. I think something I, I, that really sometimes pisses me off from founders is uh, the, ra the raising capital excuse. Like I'm raising X amount of dollars or X uh, thousand amount of dollars to build a product, to do X, to do Y, and it's like, Dude, before asking for my money, go build it yourself. I mean, it's like put some kind of, uh, and that's where people always say like, yeah, dreaming and having ideas is super, it's basically free, right? So it's just putting the work, right? Uh, demonstrate, because if you're going to ask for someone's money, it's a responsibility that people doesn't, that person doesn't just have the money silently. Someone give it to him or it's probably his own. So there's a responsibility to it. And for that, you you got to put in the effort, put the responsibility, and let's show that you actually are convinced about what you're doing. So yeah, what I always recommend entrepreneurs is before asking for money, reaching out to people, is just build it. Like go learn to code, go find someone that can code for you, convince them that the idea you're working on is a great idea and hence it's worth your time or uh, do it part-time while doing another job and work at nights and use that money to hire someone to help you. I don't know, there's a lot of ways you can actually have skin in the game so you're you actually show other people that you're, you're serious about what you're doing awesome yeah i think i think one of the, the things as well is that at a certain point people are like yeah i'm not going to share my idea because then somebody with more money is going to take that idea from me and it's like 
it's <laughs> it's what you just said. Just start somewhere. Start building something first. As always, yeah, we do I, have people in the comment section joining in. I would want to do a quick shout out to Rahim joining in as well. Hello, guys. And Moreno Jackson joining in. Moreno is a very big on local entrepreneurship as well. So uh, thank you for joining in, Moreno. Yeah, so to get in straight into it, we've been talking before we had a call a few months ago after, you know, the fellowship. I actually met Enzo during the podcasting fellowship and the, the crowd there was amazing. And in our talk, we had we had this talk, you know, in, in Latin America, the, the reason you moved to Mexico was you found that it was lacking, that the startup and venture capital ecosystem was lacking. So could you quickly or briefly describe what the situation in Peru and I, I guess the region in general and before we move on to Mexico. What I found is that so after I graduated from school I went to work for a small traditional investment firm in Peru called Winnipeg Capital. It had a family office, an investment banking arm and also a small funds area where they launched an, what I call an angel fund rather than a seed fund. Basically it was money from the people, wealthy clients from the family office. They put it into that fund and we started investing in a more let's say, organized way instead of doing angel uh, personal investments into the companies. And I, I worked at that, co at that firm, did everything, including that fund. Uh, I joined because one of the partners was an angel investor and I was interested in, uh, was an angel investor in Peru, well known. And I was just interested in getting to know this ecosystem, startup world that I had heard and read a lot. And there weren't really many options. It was one of the few, so that's why I picked it. Even though I didn't love the other part of the job, it was like, okay, there's the only, this is the only thing that's available. And I mean, I, I was lucky enough that they launched the fund while I, I started there. Like after a few months, I started there. We started investing. It was like the, basically it was me and that partner where I was like the analyst, the main analyst. Uh, I, we really did like super small investments. Uh, if you compare to what's happening now and what you see in, in the news, it was like- What's super years. small? Yeah, compared 20, to, what's 20, super 30, small? 20 to $30,000. And we were like, like angel, basically like angel investments, but basically, but from a fund instead of from a a person. Uh, but still, I mean, in the end, getting to know the founders, doing due diligence, analyzing opportunities, it's pretty similar that even if you would invest 500K or a million dollars, right? So I like that work uh, and I decided I wanted to get into BC. But when I was in Peru, was already a ceiling. The other options that I could have moved to another couple of funds were basically horizontal moves. And it was just because there wasn't at that time there were not really institutional BC funds in Peru. Uh, they're basically, la actually, last year, two new were launched. They're the, the two biggest ones, funds so far, but they didn't exist when I was there. So basically, my, my thought process was, if I want to do a career in venture capital, I have to basically fly into the future to go to ecosystem that's more developed, because otherwise, I'm just going to like slow down because the ecosystem is still super early in Peru, right? There wasn't no many BC funds. Also, a small number of startups, etc. No real international investors coming here, coming to Peru. So that's why I decided to start looking for opportunities abroad, and that's how I ended up applying to to this VC fund in Mexico. Literally by the webpage, I I knew no one, but I was well prepared. I had a few months of studying a lot, listening to podcasts, reading to blogs, etc. And I, I felt like I, I hacked my way in that sense because it it was like I had experience in VC just because I was a nerd reading a lot of other investors. And I think that's what that surprised this BC fund from Mexico that decided to, to hire me, uh, literally import me from Peru, from Peru to Mexico. So it's really interesting to hear that, you know, even in Peru, and I, I guess a lot is applicable to a lot of Latin American, South American countries. I haven't visited many South American countries. Actually, I haven't visited any of the Spanish-speaking countries, which is sad. But even here in Suriname, we're even smaller. You guys, pop, the population is above 30 million. And if, if you compare that to scale with us, we, we barely reach over half a million, so not even a million. And mm -hmm. we have this, you know, even call it advantage, disadvantage. I kind of disconnect with the rest of Latin America because we don't speak Spanish. So we don't have that ecosystem here either, like uh, the, the startup venture uh, ecosystem. We had a talk a, a few weeks ago with an Olympic swimmer. He's local, but he studied abroad in the United States. And he's also went and started, you know, interest in venture capital. So we're looking for options, you know, similarities, struggles to how we can compare that and kind of bring that culture or start and cultivate the best of that culture here with the limited resources that we have. So when you were applying to Mexico, looking at the opportunities, 
what made Mexico so different than Peru in, in terms of venture capital and startup ecosystem? I always say that I made a list of 10 or 20 funds that, were, that I knew and had heard about. A few of them were in Colombia, a few in Argentina, a few in Mexico. And I applied to all of them that had open positions. It happened to be one in Colombia, one in Mexico, one in Argentina. I didn't pick any country. I just said, like, whatever country gives me opportunity. So it's not that I, I always say, I, it's not that I said I want to come to Mexico. It was just like a coincidence. In that sense, I think I was lucky. Like I, I made, I probably if I would have gone to Argentina or Colombia, uh, I wouldn't be where I am right now. I think I, I went to Mexico like in a precise moment, in a really good timing. And I think there's, I always say like that there's, like literally when I came out of the airplane and tried my first week in, in working for the BC fan, it was like I felt like I, I was in an ecosystem 10 or 20 years into the future from Peru. And I think there's three things that have really accelerated Mexico. And I will say like, for me, Mexico City is becoming like the Silicon Valley of Latam. So I always say like, to all of my friends or people that I know that wanna get into BC, I say like, just grab a plane and come here. You gotta take a chance. And it's not that, fortunately, airplane tickets are much more cheap. So so you can actually save a few, a few uh, save a same amount, X amount of money, come here for three months, get to know people and you'll eventually find an opportunity. And there's a lot, of, and those are, and that's because there are free trends that I think favor the, the Mexico City. One is just a lot of big tech companies coming to Mexico: Stripe, Facebook, Netflix, Amazon. All these companies are opening their headquarters for Latam. They're investing in, in in getting technical talent here, so they're being building big offices. Or obviously, that implies money and talent. Not not only not only money. Then you have just big investors coming to Mexico as they were doing into, into, into Brazil, for example, 10 years ago, but they're no more serious about Mexico. I think Mexico took a bit longer to explore in terms of ecosystem, but now it's really catching up with Brazil. And that's obviously the, the big fans, like, you know, SoftBank and Tiger Global, and all those big fans are obviously bringing money. And that money obviously attracts more talent, just like more opportunities, more job opportunities to work in startups, to work in VC, et cetera. And finally, and it is, and this late, this the the latest one is something obviously more special about Mexico is that all the startups in South America uh, and even in, in Central America, their second target market is always Mexico, because you have uh, Spanish uh, and obviously a giant market. It's harder to go from Peru to go to Brazil, or from Chile to Brazil than to go from Peru to Mexico, from Chile to Mexico, from Argentina to Mexico, from Panama, from Costa Rica to Mexico. It's an easiest place. And it's a giant market. There's much more money to be raised. So it's just like, I think like those, these free trends basically make that the, the Mexico city has become a place for great talent. And I will say you can go out and you can meet people from anywhere, literally like you have the same chance of meeting a Mexican or, or meeting a Colombian or Venezuelan, an American, Venezuelan, a Spanish, an English guy. And there's 90% chance that that person will be working in tech. So, okay, but but we do have to ask the question: How important is it for you to be good in Spanish? Not, no, I'd say it's becoming less important because most people working in tech, uh, even in Latin America, they do speak some amount of English. So that's that's actually like something in favor, for example, of Suriname, because it's just required. Even even the local companies like Rappi, etc., when they hire developers, you're not going to speak English in. In, at work. I mean, if you're going to write, read the documentation of Stripe of AWS, it tends to be in English. So you got to have some basic understanding of English. So, I mean, I, I say like you go to a bar in, in the, the, like the big, big districts of, of Mexico City and a lot of people speak English and, it, and, it's, and it's not white male guys who are American, right? It's just basically Latin Americans. Even if you have like made Brazilians, <laughs> so you, have, you have to speak English with Brazilians because Portuguese. Most Portuguese in the end becomes a neutral the neutral language to to meet people. Obviously, if you wanna if you wanna learn uh, English is I mean if you wanna learn uh, or like uh, read things in general, I think people still prefer to read in Spanish, and that's why I did Startup Piable and I, and it's in Spanish because I, I find that there's a lot of people that prefer to read stuff uh, in their own languages. But in the end, I don't think communication is is, is a problem really. So speaking of a uh, good thing that you mentioned, startup, yeah, startup, you know, it's a tongue twister, <laughs> startup, viable uh, again, because this is, you know, uh, a platform you started by yourself or was, were you still in Peru uh, when you started this, right? No, I, I started in, I started writing before since I was in Peru, but for other blogs and I started startup, itself in January last year. So I was already in Mexico. 
Okay, I I checked it out a bit, and what what I found great, although all of it was in Spanish, I I, I could understand you know the, the basic structure that you gathered kind of a, you know a, a database of you know venture VCs companies in the region for people to able to find. So I guess the question comes down to how did you get those you know relationships built, and is it just a platform to show where what is, or do you have those you know network relations so that entrepreneurs can link up with these species or companies how did that go that's that's a directory we basically called it crunchbase for latam uh, literally it's it's a copy of crunchbase i would say it's, it's not a big idea but it's obviously targeted to latin americans and in spanish and we try to create the data more than crunchbase does and i it was born just because founders were asking me where we in the blog and the glossary we had and, and they were sending messages on LinkedIn or Twitter or even through emails. Hey, and so I'm raising an angel round. Do you know who I should contact to? I'm raising a seed round. I'm raising a series A. Who should I talk to, et cetera? Do you know who invests in fintech or who invests in edtech or who invests in health tech, which is where there's not many investors, et cetera? So I said, like, okay, I need to build a platform or a database because I can't answer to all these emails once the blog started gaining more traction and more, and more readers. Right now, it's basically like a like a directory, it's not that you can't contact directly the, the investors. I mean, you can get their emails. Uh, sometimes it depends on the uh, on how the investors uh, want to be open about their information because we put some kind, some amount of information, but also investors can basically claim their their profile on on the directory and they can start editing that data. So that's something we made because that way we can ensure that they, that data is more updated, right? Because obviously it's it's some it's some kind of operational job to to be updating the constantly the information. But what we we do build is uh, Semillas, which is another, it's like a complementary tool to the, to the directory, which basically we call it, it's a Tinder for investors and startups in, in Latin America. So since we had a lot of startups looking for funding coming to us through my own work and for Startup Adley had like a network of investors, I started, I, I made this simple tool to match them through thesis, through stages, for type of investors, for countries they're interested in, we we are automated in that way. And now, basically, if you if you are on the directory, you can also apply to Semillas, and we will send. A, I mean, in that, in that case, you have to apply. It's not open to anyone because we try to ensure that there's a minimum quality of startup because otherwise, investors that are trusted because in the end, it's their trust in capacity <laughs> to yeah. deal flow. So if I them if I just send them whatever deal I see, that hey, and so you're just spamming me with emails, I'm not going to open them, right? So that we have to balance that. And that's something we do for free. I mean, we, we don't charge for that. It's just it's just a way of scaling my capacity to connect startups and investors, which when it was, when Startup Alley wasn't that well known, I could do it personally through email, but it's got into a scale where I, can, I can't no longer handle it by myself. Right? Okay, so I, I do have to ask, before I ask my questions, some people that joined in, Marvin is joining in as well. Tevin is joining in as well. Rahim just wants to say, he wants all the insights, so he wants after the show he wants to know how he can go to Startup Diable and then kind of start uh, start finding some VC. So shortly about because you mentioned different stages, so one is the seed capital stage and so on. So we have different stages, and you also mentioned even starting in Peru with with smaller amounts, 20, 40k uh, US dollars, which still is already a lot for local entrepreneurs often. So could you take us to the process of what do you need to have in place as a startup to be interesting enough for a venture capitalist? Let me first take a step back. And I'm going to, I always say, and it's it's not a straight answer, but it's the truth, the reality. There's two types of entrepreneurs. In one of my last interviews for my podcast, we talked about that with an investor who I think is one of the few investors in Latin America who speaks openly about it. And it's, I think we, we should be, sometimes we, we don't like speaking about truths, but there are truths in the end. So there's two types of entrepreneurs. I call them pedigree entrepreneurs and non-pedigree entrepreneurs. Okay. So if you're a pedigree entrepreneur, which means you went to McKinsey, you worked in, I don't know, in investment banking, in, in a big American bank or a big bank in your country, eh, or you went to Stanford or Harvard, etc. Truth is, it's much more easier for you to raise money. And those entrepreneurs can even raise money with a PowerPoint. That's as plain as that. It might sound like super unfair. That's how it works. I haven't, I mean, I'm new, I'm new in the market, so I, it's not my fault. <laughs> it's just how it is. It's, it's fair. It's fair. It's fair. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's at the point. It yeah, has some fair. logic. If you, if you think about it, it's like just people want to like, it's the question is how can you validate an entrepreneur is good? 
So those are some kind of signals that investors have decided are good for them. And if you see, I mean, most of Latin American unicorns, uh, Clip, uh, Nubank, Kavak, etc. Most of these founders, they usually have worked in consulting or, or banking and have gone to an MBA in the US. So there might be some, pat uh, Americans call it a pattern matching. I mean, it doesn't necessarily imply you're the best entrepreneur, but that's how people use it. And the problem is, though, obviously, those entrepreneurs are the smallest percentage of the population of Latin America, because we always, obviously know we're in a region where opportunity is not available for everyone. So that's, I don't know, one, five percent of the, let's say, that the addressable entrepreneurs in the, in the region. And then the other ones have it much more harder. And which that implies is you got to show that you are a good entrepreneur. And how do you show that? Building a company. So that when I... When entrepreneurs come to me and ask me for, for feedback, hey, I want to raise X amount of money, I want to raise a seed round, I, I don't necessarily tell them, okay, you're, you are a pedigree entrepreneur or not, but I, I, I uh, cutter or, or, or shape my, fit my advice according to his case, because I know what's, what they're going to get when they go to, to market and, and, and start talking to investors, because I'm one and I, I've been working in many, with many, I'm in my third fund right now, which is in the US. And obviously, have, I have VCs for my friends, etc. So I know how they usually think, and it's like, I just say that. So if it's a founder which fits with the non-pedigree, I say like, okay, build an MVP and try to get some revenue. That's the main thing. This before that, if you have a PowerPoint, a good idea, you're just gonna waste your time going to investors. And and, not, and I would say not only your time. I think what's worse is that you end up frustrated. You just get a lot of bad energy because like you go to people. One, two, three, you go to a 10th investor and nobody believes in you and you just feel like, okay, this, this is just, I don't want to do it, right? You just get like super frustrated. And it's just because I think you, you, went, uh, you didn't pick the right order of steps. You should have tried to focus on your, being, in building a company. And I also like, there's no rush. Uh, you can work, do it at nights, do it on the weekends, or even get a loan from your credit card if you're super sure it's going to work. So try to put, uh, and in the end, that way is that is how you get your pedigree, right? Like showing that you can build a product that's that's good, that users like, that's uh, profitable, etc. I've seen I've seen other founders, for example, go to accelerators. I think accelerators are a good pedigree hack. I'd say if you're a founder, for example, I'm young as the other than 25, so I, I know a lot of friends who are 25, and at 25 you can't have pedigree. It's like even if you went to the best university in your country, you're still a baby, right? It's like your probably <laughs> first years in the in the in the labor market, you obviously don't have an MBA. So even if you're working in McKinsey as a Nana as a first year analyst, you're you still don't have a pedigree. And I have friends doing those jumps like at super early in their careers to, to become an entrepreneur. And they suffer a lot. And I've I've studied with them, I've worked with them in university. I know they're they're smart and they suffer because yeah, you you're just 25. What experience do you have? You, you, only, you haven't even had like probably were boss of someone in another company, right? So for those, I think for those kind of uh, young entrepreneurs, especially like accelerators like Wacominate or 500 Startup, they really help them a lot because they put you like a brand that just opens your door to, to a lot of uh, investors and possibility to, to not, not only investors, but get the talent, uh, allies, etc. This brings up an interesting point, Diego, for me. It's it's kind of a it's not a juxtaposition, but it's it's almost like you, you have two kind of things. Like from a, a traditional perspective, I, I completely agree. And of course the pedigree matters and the age matters, and not necessarily the age, but how much experience do you mm -hmm. have? Like especially for young entrepreneurs that are watching that are in their twenties, you have to understand that even if you have a great product, the investors don't know if you know how to deal with people. So they don't know whether if you're going to scale, if you'll be capable of dealing with that pressure of having to scale a team and knowing how to deal with people that once you have to scale beyond your own time, if you can actually deal with that. So from that perspective, I, I do understand it. People see Mark Zuckerberg and suddenly think they can be Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> and I'm 20 years old, CEO of a multi-billion-dollar company. And Mark Zuckerberg is just an alien. Like he's out of the world. Like he's like the messy of, yeah. of a startup, right? It's like... It's super hard to be that. So, but they, they see the mountain, of course, and they don't see how to get to the top, but they're just like, okay, that top, we can get there. But then you have the other side, and I think, and, and you have to correct me in this if I'm wrong, there are now certain jobs, certain companies that you can build where you don't have to scale in resources, in human resources. You can now build a company which is completely online, it's completely automized, and you automize all those processes, whereas you can 
not everything, but you can reduce the amount that you really need to hire people, external people, or you can just work with, with contractors. Like you have a tech business and you just outsource part of your work to somebody in India and you don't need to actually hire people because it's only a project-based innovation that you have to do within your product. So I do think there's another side to it as well. And it, it kind of brings the situation where we are also fighting. I'm in a big discussion with one of my fellow IT entrepreneurs where he's saying like, I don't want to have a big team. I actually want a smaller team, less clients, higher quality. And I actually earn more with less clients and a smaller team that I would do if I scale it to 15, 20 people. So what's, what's your take on that? When you look at entrepreneurship, what, how do you find entrepreneurship? Is it providing a solution for people or is it also providing a workplace for others? Uh, that's, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think there's definitely space for both. And I, what, I, what I say now is that we usually, when we thought about SMEs or small business, we always thought about, thought, thought about like the restaurant, the small corner shop, the small printing shop, like nearby your neighborhood. And there's this new class of SMBs that are online first. They are, I don't know, they can be digital agencies, digital consultants, a, like a small SaaS product for a specific niche, a small marketplace, a job board, etc. There's a lot of opportunities for the internet. And you don't need to raise money for that. I mean, you don't need venture capitalists or investors to do that. You can bootstrap it by yourself. It's usually super lean businesses where, as you say, you don't need to hire a lot of people. You can use contractors whenever you just need them. And that's a big opportunity. And I, and I think what, what I always say is like, I mean, for, for sure, that's entrepreneur, their entrepreneurships. But it, I, what I also think of that is like, like a new wave of jobs, right? Where you can actually build your own job by yourself in a super easy way. With, and, it, and, it, and even it even goes to the point of using Uber, like, I, I always discuss this when people criticize Uber or Rappi because they pay low salaries. And yeah, they might do, but it's like, I mean, we're in Latin America. You, there, there's no uh, job safety net. It's like, if you get a, if you get kicked out of a job, you got to do whatever you need to do. Because it's not Europe, it's not the US where you get a thousand bucks for not working at all and not doing nothing. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I pray. Yes, yes, it's true, it's true, it's true. Yeah, it's true. But we're not, so, yeah. I mean, like, the fact that you can just press a button, get a bike, and start delivering food to at least be eat and get something of food. It's really a miracle, I think, for Latin Americans. I mean, ask all the Venezuelan migration, obviously because their country is in a bad situation. And for that people, Rappi and Uber and the gig economy in general, it's literally a safety net. I mean, it, obviously it's not the best job. Nobody, I mean, I don't think they say, yeah, I love my job or, because obviously it's like, you wanna learn, it's, it, it gets to be a repetitive job, but it still allows you a place to start. Right. And, and that scales to being a, and you, I mean, the same concept is going to Fiverr, going to, to, I always forgot the, the name of all, all the other platforms where you can get gig jobs and do like coding stuff or web pages. And it's a, we're going into a world of more, more flexible work in general. And it has nothing to do with BC, right? It's like, it's okay. <laughs> it's like, I mean, I, I, yeah. I, in myself, I got, I do freelance for companies in the U.S. through these, these web pages, and they pay, even pay me more than what I earn in Mexico. So. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, a lot that you've mentioned brings so many questions and uh, topics we can uh, dive into. But I, I guess the first thing to stick to VC for a bit before we uh, dive too much into entrepreneurship. So if, if we're talking about VC, right, venture capital and scaling, first of all, are the startups in Latin America that are, you know, PC pedigree ready? Is, is it mostly tech companies, uh, service companies? Or do you also have these like, you know, product companies that actually create, you know, physical products or uh, if you're looking at agriculture or even food production, for example, is it those types of companies or is the majority still tech? How is that space in, and the differentiation in types of companies that apply for VC? I, I would, if I were to speak like the history of VC, I was actually having a conversation about that a few weeks ago. I think that uh, probably for the first 10 years, like 2000 to 2010, 2015, most of the company were, companies in, the, in Latin America were doing like the copycats. Like, okay, Mercado Libre is the eBay of Latin and, and you can and think in so far and so forth, which it's not a demeanor, a demeanor because you know, I, I, I always say like, 
even if the front end is the same as the company in the US, the back end is totally different. <laughs> Regulation, operations. Doing things in America is 100x much more harder than the US. So when people tell you, hey, you just do it in a copica, they're like, dude, doing a copica is hard. <laughs> it's like, I think people just use it as a critic and it's not fair at all. But now we're, I think we're beginning to see more companies targeting specific problems of Latin Americans. And that obviously goes from, I mean, you just need to think in what are the, the more, uh, I'd say like unique challenges that Latin America has versus other regions, right? And agriculture is for sure one of those, access to finance, banking, health, education. I still think most of things are software driven, uh, technology driven. Well, I mean, hardware is also a technology. And in agriculture, I'm seeing, a, there's a lot of like for the past year, a lot of investment in, in agriculture, like growing in, in ag tech. And I think it depends. We're probably not going to see companies doing like physical hardware products because, I mean, the Asian, Asian markets, countries are much more, basically, they have a lot of scale and they have focused a lot in doing hardware for the past 30 years. So they have an edge in that. And it's like, even, even when I meet, for example, companies that are doing ag tech software to help uh, farmers optimize crops, predict uh, rain or predict uh, weather conditions, they use, most of them, Chinese hardware because like yeah there's no value add in me trying to build a I know a drone it's I might just choose the drone to get data and build my own software build my own algorithms etc so it's like I think it's just trying to op optimize and focus on the real pain points or, or challenges that our industries and our economies have in comparison to our countries that are more developed or just have different problems right so this brings a I, I guess a, a provoking thought do we even need like VC culture in Latin America? If we've talked about entrepreneurship, bootstrapping first and, you know, building the product, looking for the problem and going from that. So from that context, no, how don't. much do we even need VC culture in, in Latin America? Or, or does yeah. it handicap us? I think like, is it actually becoming a handicap? We, we first we first have to define what's VC culture. I think VC culture, actually like a few hours, a couple of hours ago, someone was complaining on LinkedIn that, there's too much the unicorn culture in Latin America. And it's like, it's like there's space for both. I mean, for small business owners, for more technical entrepreneurs, small bootstrap businesses. But the thing also is that there's really big problems in Latin America that I personally, and that's why I work in BC, obviously, if I thought otherwise, I would be working here because I feel like, okay, I'm just, I'm just being a clown pretending there's an industry where that doesn't exist. There's problems where you need a lot of money up front. And you can't just do in bootstrapped. I mean, for example, just two simple examples, Nubank in, in Brazil. They're the fifth or sixth world, uh, sixth uh, or fifth largest bank in Brazil, 40 million users. I mean, Nubank started with a pitch deck. David Vélez, the founder, he raised with a pitch deck, with a PowerPoint from Casec and Sequoia. He obviously had a super pedigree, a Stanford. He worked in, I think, in, I'm sure if JP Morgan or Goldman and then working in Sequoia, et cetera. When you think, how, how much money do you need to launch a credit card and get a bank license? It's a lot of money because it's a lot of regulation. It's a few, probably a few hundred thousand dollars, if not a few million dollars. So if he hadn't raised that busy money, today, FinTech in Latin would be nothing. I mean, the, Brazil, the Brazilian banking market would still be a super strong oligopoly, which st still is, but it's, still, it's more suffering. And, getting to compete because fintechs are uh, being a pain on their ass. If it wasn't for that a few million dollars that Sequoia and Kasek took a risk, literally an entrepreneur with a PowerPoint, we wouldn't have Nubank and we wouldn't have better options of, of banks. Another more recent, Nubank started a few years ago, more recent example. In Mexico, there's a company called Sofia that I actually use. It's a basically a health insurance startup. I mean, getting a health insurance is a pain. <laughs> it's like calling a broker, et cetera. And they've, they started, uh, the founder is called Arturo. I, I interviewed him in my podcast. They raised $3 million on a PowerPoint. And they were able to do it because he was ex-Index Venture, which is a really good venture capital firm in England. His founders were, co-founders were ex-Google, ex-Patreon. And they raised on a PowerPoint. They started on 2018. They launched the product December last year. They took all those two years, getting the regulation, which was like, I mean, to start a, uh, a health insurance company in Mexico, I think it's, you have to pay, I mean, I've, I've heard a process is like north of a million dollars. 
So a bootstrap entrepreneur can't pay that money, right? It's like, where are you going to get that money? And, and, there's, and there's those huge problems need investors that like risk, that like venture, right? To, to make those bets on a PowerPoint. And now I use Sophia and it's like getting a health insurance, it's literally free clicks on, on your finger. And it's like, and it's like, and it's a product way better than the other options I saw on the on the market from traditional health insurers. So there wouldn't be that option if it wasn't for. I mean, and Sophia is just starting; it's super new. It's like it has less than a year in the market. So I, I really hope they do well because if they do well, more people are going to have health insurance because it's cheaper, it's easily accessible, and also that traditional players are going to start innovating and stop charging super high fees, making the product. I mean, I think in Mexico, only 10% of people have private health insurance. So it's basically like an inexistent market, right? So I think there are big markets, big problems that need a lot of capital in the beginning to make that jump, to pass those barriers that can be technology, infrastructure, regulation, et cetera. Or for example, also in, the, in, in education, like you, if you want to sell to school a product of better education, you just can't sell an MVP. It's super hard to sell an MVP because the school's gonna say, dude, I'm not gonna buy you your arithmetic course. Sell me the whole math course, right? So you gotta invest a lot in content, in teachers to develop that. So the biggest problems in, in, in our region, uh, I, I think related to those three things, education, health, and finance, they have a lot of like barriers to entry. And if nobody's willing to put that money to take that risk, we're just gonna have our public education, public health for forever, right? <laughs> we, which we obviously know are not that good. Okay, now there, there are two things that come to mind. First of all, it, I think it's a difference in mindset. I, I think what you're discussing, solving the problems that you wanna discuss, so when we're talking about education, healthcare, access to finance, these are really bigger issues than I wanna start a business and I wanna run a shop, for instance. Yeah, so, so I think the mindset, the mindset is, is, is very, very different. Both are from, about, uh, from Yeah, yeah. So, but I think for a venture capital work as well, it's it's difficult. I, I'm, I mean, it's, it's how, and, and that's where the pedigree becomes important because like, how are you going to prove that, that you can validate the concept that you have? Like you said, an MVP is not enough. So, so at a certain point, like one of the things, one of the, one of my first books on entrepreneurship that I read was by Guy Kawasaki, which was a bootstrap, a bootstrap based book. And he said, like, you have to have the team. So like a lot of young entrepreneurs, they have this big idea, but they're like, they're like three things you need to be good at, but you only have one of those three. So for those that want to do it and actually are searching for partners, like, how are you going to find a partner to work with that you're going to need because you need one of those two other uh, skills that you need? And if you don't have that skill yourself, how can you actually find out that those partners are not just telling you this great story about what they're capable of, but how can you actually figure out if their, their pedigree or their skill is valid enough for you to take you to the next level? Mm. That's that's a million dollar question. I mean, I'm not I'm not a founder, so I always say I have. No, but I, I mean, I, I ask it because I know that that it's something that you've come across, and I'm wondering, like, do you just decide to? I'm, and I'm it, it's hard for me because I'm more of a bootstrap entrepreneur. I'm very much if I don't have the skill, I don't jump into it. If I don't find somebody that does that has the skill, I don't jump into it. Even if I really really want it. But I just know I don't have anybody in my team that's capable of doing it. And I don't have the partner that I can trust to do it. I just leave it. I'm like, in two years' time, somebody will pop up and, and they will take care of it. I am and the same. If, if it's that, yeah, there, start, I just... Startup Pele was built the same way you're describing. I literally only got into do things that I didn't know when I got the person, but I didn't rush into find that person. So the director is an example of that. It's, it has a bit of no code. One of my, my, my interests in my team is a developer. He knows it. I had no idea he helped me a lot. And that's why I built Startup like by steps and it took a lot of time with, in which if I were like a more busy fund or busy entrepreneur, I would have got a team, raise the money and do it. And I was just, I mean, obviously I was working at the same time, so I had no rush. And I, and I don't think Startup is a busy backable company just because of what we're doing, which doesn't mean it, it, there's a problem and there's a, an opportunity to make impact and to have a good product. It's just different, as you say, mindsets. But I mean, what, what I've, see is like a lot of founders 
that after doing or having success doing bootstrap business, they want to go the VC route. And I think it's it's probably even better because you just come with much more experience, tools in the in your in your belt. I mean, probably high, a bigger amount of network. On top of that, there is something much more, uh, I'd say, like basic, which is if you've bootstrapped the business, do well, and you probably have whatever kind of business you, you, you bootstrapped into and it's working and you know that you can leave it and it's still going to be working and it, it makes you, you know, a thousand bucks a month for 2000, whatever amount it is, and you can live calm with that. That's actually a good moment to jump into the, into the busy entrepreneur way if you're motivated to do it. Because the, the busy way is much more risky, right? And it usually is zero, I mean, all or nothing, right? It's rare that startups uh, do a, can become bootstrap business, right? Uh, like they can become lifestyle business. They usually do super well, or they just like stall and they really don't don't scale. And it gets to a point in which the founder feels like there's no more to do. To it, I'm just gonna leave it. So that that's what I think. Bootstrap founders get into a comfortable economical place uh, where they can actually be willing to take that huge risk into doing a, a company, uh, a VC com VC backed company. Ian just mentioned, you know, VC is risk. And we talk about millions of dollars investing in a PowerPoint. A lot of, you know, these tech startups in the first few years, they don't run on net profit cash flow. They basically live on VC money. Mm -hmm. So at what point do you as a VC decide that, you know, you've invested the money in such a startup, a PowerPoint startup? and they, they don't perform after two years or what's the consequences behind that? Is it just lost money because you, you guys took the risk or is there an, another way that that gets, you know, resolved? I mean, first of all, it depends. There, there's investors that are willing to do, to invest in PowerPoints. My first, the first fund I worked for in Peru, we were willing to do it because we were an angel fund. The funds I worked after, we were really more into we want to see an MVP product because always, we also invest much more money. But in the end, like the, the life of a fund, of, any, of a BC fund, looks like a J. Usually on the first years, like two to three years, it goes down because you see all the companies that will do bad, they usually do bad on the first years. And then suddenly it's like a few couple of years, like say the third, fourth or fifth year of the fund, most companies are still like, there's a few companies that have resisted and they've passed those first years, the value of death, and they're starting to grow. And suddenly one of those, boop, it blows. Uh, and that's what's happened. I mean, like, I in, uh, actually, tomorrow we are releasing on, on, my, on my podcast an interview with Hernan Kazaj, who is a partner and founder of Kasek Ventures, which is a, probably the leading, uh, not, not probably, the leading fund, the leading venture capital fund in, in Latin America. And he described that his, his first fund of Kasek, 95% of the returns are from Nubank. So he's invested like in 10, 20 companies and 95 of the return of that, comp of that fund is because of one investment. And that's usually the, the, the behavior that you see in most funds. Most, most companies you invest in either do bad, just close, disappear, or they just stagnate and I mean, an stagnated startup is, is, is a loss for a, for a VC because it means you won't be able to sell it. So in the end, there's no return. So it's it's the same zero as being stagnated, right? If you picked one or two good companies, suddenly that company is going to explode. But the thing is, you just got to wait, right? On the first years, you're usually going to feel like the dumbest investor because you usually see the losses first. And the wins, you're going to see them after seven, eight years at least. So how do they, how do venture capitalists kind of, is it a, a risk calculation that they just make the calculation and decide this is worth it, this isn't? Or do they actually put in some kind of security in it saying like this amount of stock and I want this amount of control from the board or even this amount of control on a C level, like on a, a directing manager directing level. So how do you, do you also have a differentiation between a venture capitalist that uh, just provide the venture capital and venture capitalists that actually want to be involved in the operation or directly or indirectly be involved in the operation? Is there a difference between those two? 
as well? I think most investors at the beginning of the industry were more like what you described on the second one. I think lately, most investors tend to leave the founder to him to do it himself. I mean, some VCs, they only invest if they get a board seat. For example, I think Kasek does that. I mean, for, for entrepreneurs, like having an investor who's experienced, who's seen a lot, it's a good advice. But in the end, you can get good advice, but the company is yours and you decide. And, and BC, by definition, is a minority investor. VCs get 10, 15, 20% of a company. So, and even, even VCs that get higher chance, usually entrepreneurs ask for control rights. So even if the entrepreneur gets to 10, 20, I mean, company, when a company starts raising a lot of money, it gets to a point where the, probably the, the founder have, has 10, 20% of the company. So he really is not a, doesn't have control. But usually in the contract, they will give them higher, like his votes on the board level would be much more valuable. So in the end, he has control. So that I think that's just like the way BC tends to work, where you give much more power to, to the founder because it's not a, uh, the difference between BC and private equity and public investing is that you're trying to build a machine to make money. Like investing in Apple, the machine is already built. It's like, you don't need to control it, right? I mean, you can, I mean, I'm sorry, you can control it if you want to do something else, et cetera. But at, at the super earliest levels of a company, first years, you're trying to build a machine. And obviously as the investor, you have no idea how to build a machine. The one that had the idea and the started is the founder. So it's usually better to leave the founder to have freedom to decide. Obviously there's some things that you might want control. For example, EBCs might ask, okay, if you want to expand to another country, okay, you need, I know some kind of extra votes, right? So, so those, those kind of super big, big decisions, but I'd say 95% of the decisions in a company, even it has, if it has busy investors will usually be taken by the founder and they usually have freedom, both legally and also both from a, I'd say like support level will be done by them, by themselves. Cool. We got one comment from the chat here, or I, I guess a question, and then we'll follow up with our final questions. So Gregory asks, how do you deal with political and currency risk? Are those risks modeled into the required rate of returns? That's a really good question. Estimate, forecasting returns or estimating returns in BC is super hard because of why I described the J. But usually hmm. most companies will go to zero or will be stagnated. And then there's one company that if you do it, you are good in busy investors, you want to find one or two companies that do just super well. And actually, if you see the data in most VCs, the VCs that do well in terms of returns and they're able to raise more funds, because if you invest a fund and you do bad, no other investors are going to put money into your fund, right? Obviously, why, why would you invest in them? Um, so most of the funds that do well actually have what we call in the industry a fund returner. Which is basically one company that does most of the returns. Okay, so it's basically like that unicorn you invested, right? That Nubank, that uh, Clip, that Stripe, whatever. So if you get one of those companies, usually the currency and risk return, political return, are, since, since its companies are such outliers that they grow so big, usually those kind of risks don't matter. I mean, in my end, investing in Mercado Libre a company based in Argentina, currency risk and political risk. But Mercado Libre has done so well, they've done better than anyone would have imagined. They've become literally the most valuable company in Latin America and it's a private and it's a technology, well, it's not a, a public company, but it's a technology company, more valuable than Pemex and all the big petroleum public companies in Latin America. And literally that risk from Argentina, political and currency didn't matter because it's, it ju it's just such a, literally like something extraordinary that the returns are so big that even if even even if Argentina closes, I don't know, or they something crazy, a president comes and push Mercado Libre out of Argentina, they're still giant. I mean, Brazil and Mexico, all the market they've, uh, they've penetrated, it's just giant. So those things don't matter, right? Obviously for our companies that don't do it well, those risks might, might be more game changer for the returns, right? So on the topic of currency in particular, does this imply that most of the investments are looked through a looking grass of the US dollar currency for clarification? Not necessarily. I'd say what most BC investors in general, you, most investors in BC in Latin America and even in the US coming to Latin America, they do think about currency risk. That's for sure. So how you hedge currency risk? Because as we know, currency is a problem in our region, historically, mm -hmm. it's a hedge. Inflation. 
how do you hedge going to other countries? Not only depending on the Mexican peso, but depending on the Peruvian sol, the Colombian peso, on the Brazilian real. So you have a combination of, of currencies, even if one do, does super bad, you can hedge and you can live through it. If you only depend on the Venezuelan Bolivar 20 years ago, you are done. Yeah, the, the inflation rates in Latin America have been ridiculous. So then, then yeah. I want to get your, as my final <laughs> Obviously, there, there's a few companies that are able to sell in dollars to the US, for example. Those are obviously, they are, they benefit it even, right? They are, they are like, they are like a, a, a extreme, a rare cases or weird cases in which inflation actually favors them, right? Yeah. Right. But you got to do a product so well that you're able to compete in the US, which is, so it is not, not easy, right? So the, the, the final question on the topic of currency for me is then, I, I hope you saw this announcement that, you know, uh, we're talking about Latin America, Central America here, and Hello. we love to bring crypto into our talks. So El Salvador has legalized Bitcoin uh, as, as legal tender. So what's your take? I guess uh, it doesn't have to be from a PC standpoint in particular, but as a Latin American in El Salvador, and I guess, other Latin Americans countries probably will follow suit to legalize a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. I don't think, I mean, I, I'm so sorry. To start, I haven't read the, the I've heard about the, the Salvador news. I can't really haven't got into it to know the details, but more from a macro perspective, I do think there's a big role for crypto in Latin. It's probably, probably more from Bitcoin than crypto, at least right now, I'd say. And it's because what we're describing, in, we all suffer from inflation. It's literally like a pain in the ass. And the only option we have is dollars, literally. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure how it's in Suriname, but and Central America in general. But for example, Peru is a really dollar, we say dollarized economy. I'm not sure if that's the right term, but basically a huge percentage of the economies moved in dollars. People save in dollars in Peru. Why? Because in the 80s, uh, yeah, between the yeah, 80s and 90s, we had huge hyperinflation, like, seven, like Venezuela, where not more than Venezuela, but Venezuela type inflation during the 90s. So basically people stopped believing on the sol. And even right now, after our, the sol in Peru has been quite stable and the central bank has done a pretty good job, people say, no, I'm not going to take the risk that suddenly a, a crazy president comes and start printing money. <laughs> at the I'm just going to uh, save in dollars. Literally, I did it. And I, I was born after that crisis, but it just passed from my family. Like, no, save in dollars. Just be a little bit better. But for example, I came to Mexico and in Mexico, opening a bank account in dollars is hard. You need to, there's like a lot of a process, like legal process that you have to make to be able to do it. Obviously it's because of, of, of money laundering, etc. And in Peru it's super easy to access, so that's great. But in actually most countries in Latin America, getting dollars is hard. So the, the only option that you have to protect your wealth from inflation and crazy prescience is in most countries restricted. What's the alternative? Crypto and Bitcoin in particular, right? Which is the easiest to access and easiest to, 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 to turn to cash or whatever you need if you ever want to consume. So that I think Bitcoin for sure and crypto, you know, specifically for, for reserve of, of value have really good. We're and laughing I, so hard and because I, I, you I, don't even know our economy and, and you're describing exactly what's going on for us as well. So yeah, and, and it's like I, I meet I, from then on, I meet more people that uh, for example, companies in, in, in Peru, or I see a lot of companies from Peru, Mexico, Colombia, uh, hiring people from Venezuela or Argentina, and they pay them in Bitcoin because they obviously don't want to receive, because they can pay them by dollars, but it's super expensive to get dollars in their country. So in, in the end, they, those same workers tell you, no, just pay me for Binance or whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm proud. I'm proud of, of my fellow entrepreneurs. I'm in an entrepreneurs group, and I want to shout them out because there are at least three entrepreneurs in our entrepreneur group that, that actually allow payments in, in cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency at the moment, like local entrepreneurs that like, you want to pay me in, in, in Bitcoin? Okay, fine. You can pay me in Bitcoin. So that's indeed a move that is coming. A company uh, that's going to have a great role there is Bitso, the Mexican, it's like a Mexican uh, Coinbase. They are already in Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, and they think that they could do something really great if they Imagine if they open in, get to open in all the countries in Latin America. It's basically like a, another banking system <laughs> where yeah. in, you can send Bitcoin from it's like, And at that point, it's like, okay, we no longer <laughs> need to depend on the fucking Peruvian sol or Mexican peso, whatever that devaluates whenever our 
presidents go crazy, right? So yeah, so, a lot of opportunity here. I actually wanted to ask a football question, but there are so many questions coming in. We're gonna we're gonna pick three more questions, and then we're gonna close it off. So Theo wants to know it's a little bit more about startups in general. Any advice how to deal with team dynamics in startups? Super open question. I mean, I, I think it's hard to answer because there's there's styles. I remember like a couple of weeks ago, I heard a, a founder from a company that we invested in, in the fund I am working right now in the US. He just exited his company. He sold it for $700 million. So he's super, super successful. And he said something that sticks to my mind a lot. The best founders, the best entrepreneurs, we write the rules. They, don't, they, they listen to advice, but then they rewrite the rules by themselves because it's what works best for you, right? Uh, there's always some general principles. I think in, the, in this remote era, what I feel like best entrepreneurs are doing is being a super active on two things, communication and culture. Communication in the sense of documenting, I mean, using Notion to put your processes of things as simple as how do you onboard a new, a new hire? How do you do sales? What's your brand type of communication? How do you do copy? And it just saves you a lot of amount of time. And I think in a remote world, a lot of the daily job has become has become a lot of ops optimized for that because otherwise you're just gonna. I mean, in the end, it's like if nobody's in the office, you don't have a way to control your people, right? So you need. And obviously, it it connects also with the second part, which is culture. Like, what kind of people do you want to attract? And I think that the best founders are usually super intentional about that. Like, okay, I need people who are proactive, who are good communicators. If you if you need someone to tell you to do your job. Then don't don't work with me. And in that sense, I think something that's important is what people call the hire fast, fire fast. faster. Yeah. If you're building a startup, sometimes you have problems, and I mean, people always say that yeah, hiring is the best important, is the most important part, recruiting, and invest a lot of time in that. But sometimes you just need someone to do sales, and it's like you don't have two months to interview all the candidates in your country or in your network to decide one. So you just gotta take a risk. And if he fits, cool. If he doesn't, just fire him. <laughs> It's super fast. <laughs> uh, I, I actually want to jump into that because I think you, you mentioned the two most important things, communication and culture. So for my advice to Theo is, is the, the founder or the CEO, does, he defines or she defines the culture. And you, you, you just cannot have people that want to work to a different culture because they won't fit, they won't stick. It will become a power struggle because they want to do something a different way than the majority of the company wants. And yeah, unfortunately, if the culture is bad and the culture doesn't work and the founder has uh, developed a bad culture, the company will fail. But, but it will fail anyway, whether or not you do hire people that go against the culture or not. Unless you hire somebody that you allow to say like, okay, I'm letting go as a founder and you take over and you probably are more going to be more successful with that culture. But in most cases, the founder decides the culture and you want to hire people that fit into that culture. And as well, the communications. I mean, most problems that arise within team dynamics are just lack or miscommunication between different parties because the intent from everybody working in the startup is always positive. But there have, there's something that's happening, which and it's not talked about. And when it's not talked about, people assume certain things. And that's basically where I feel it, it goes wrong the most of the time. Would you say like culture is defined by a CEO and founder? And founder, I said founders. So it's and and, yes. and usually what happens is, I mean, for example, imagine we we free make make a startup, and the startup is gonna get things of both of, of the three of us for of our culture and way um, uh, personality. And there might be things that I have negative that I don't want my company to get as culture. And there are things that Diego has positive that I want, that I want them. So if you are not intentional about that, yeah. your company might grow into that thing that you don't like about yourself. But it's because, and then you can't complain because it's literally a reflection of yourself. So if you are, I know if you insult people and you know it's bad, but you do it because you don't have that bad habit, it's gonna scale into once your company is 10, 20 people and 20 people are gonna be insulting themselves. And it's because you were not, you, you didn't have the purpose at the beginning of saying, okay, I have this, how can I control it for myself? How can I embed a, a different culture into the company or have Diego or, or Jean-Luc put their, their style, which is much more positive in that sense, etc. So we can have like the best of each one and not the worst of each one, right? I think you answered because Theo mentioned he was talking about a team of founders, but I think you personally mentioned as well how important the intention is and, and seeing yeah, if whether or not you, you are a fit. 
So to connect that to going to, to venture capital startups, and, and I think this is a very interesting question. What sector are LATM venture capital startups mostly in? We have a competitive advantage in labor and disadvantage in tech. So I would imagine a lot of tech VC from LATM are actually the other way around. So what, what sectors do you see that are prevailing more in, in, in VC startups in Latin America at the moment? I mean, fintech by far, it's the one that has the most most money. I, I think that in, in, in two terms, what is like the thing that we're, what are the problems most vernacular that are most uh, unique to LATAM where you as an entrepreneur or, or as a startup can have an edge versus an international company coming to LATAM, for example, that's one. And the other one is, okay, what, where do, do we actually see a lot of business? Yeah, we have an advantage in labor, but that's hmm, what kind of labor, right? <laughs> that's that's the question. So there's a, a, there's for sure cheap, cheap labor. That, yeah, that, that's not an advantage. That's that's what I mean, right? But I mean, <laughs> I, I do think that talent in Latin America is yeah. good. Like, there's a lot of good technical talent, and I have invested in a company that does actually that train technical talent. But you you also have to think about how can I say like there's more of the business side of building a tech company. That's, I think, where, where we still lack. So I think we have the Latin Americans now have like a good technical side, coding, et cetera. But I think what, what's lacking is uh, the more digital business skills like growth, product management, et cetera, at a more, at a more scale. And actually, like, I've seen a lot of startups import people from, from abroad, from the US, et cetera, because uh, it's just because that our our ecosystem is still early, right? There, there have new bank is still one company. There has been we need the, the second new bank, the second Mercado Libres. So those first ones can teach the second ones. It's just a cycle, and I think it's just a matter of time. I, I remember a few weeks ago, I heard some, I had an interview, and I read a note about talking about new bank. And people say that you go to Southeast Asia or, or, or Europe, and people talk about, hey, I want to make the new bank of Europe. I want to make the new bank of Southeast Asia. So it's because no one has got to make a literally a world-class product that other people want to build. Like it's no longer the Uber for Latin, it's the Nubank for another region. It's just a matter of time. And, and fintechs for sure is going to be that, that first vertical. I'm not sure what are, to be honest, what verticals will follow. Uh, I think fintechs definitely had a lot of advantage because just financing Latin America is so, so bad. And in comparison in the US and Europe, the banking systems are much more advanced. So that's what, what people always say, like doing a fintech in the US or Europe is much more easier than doing one in Latin. So that's why exactly like Nubank has like high, been highlighted in a sense because they've, they've built a lot of things from scratch that they, could, they, they couldn't access through third party softwares or, or, or providers. So that's why they now people talk about building Nubank for other countries, right? Interesting. I actually have a pitch ready for you after this podcast now. Okay, so uh, we have one more question. It's it's in Dutch, but I'm going to translate it. And this is the final question. We're going to close <laughs> off with this one. Not your specialty, but when is Bitcoin going to jump to 80,000? <laughs> I don't know. I hope it's tomorrow because I do have Bitcoin. So. <laughs> Diego, let's hope, do you have any? Let's hope Elon, Elon, Elon comes back to tweeting in favor of us, not, in, not against us. Okay. <laughs> Yep. Well, actually, right, he yeah. did. Actually, he did. He actually tweeted already. So, so it was yesterday or two days ago, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Bitcoin actually broke the forty k resistance yesterday. So let's hope it it stays up that resistance and bounces up. But who knows? Uh, no one can predict. I'm gonna. Uh, I'm gonna be honest. I'm, I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm gonna be honest with you, Sheldon, for asking. I'm not a predictor. This is not financial advice. But we're most likely gonna wait. Have to wait to the next halving. That's that's my. Very, very conservative prediction, unfortunately. Mm. Cool. I guess that was a fun note to end it on. And then to close off, Enzo, to close it off, where can people find you? You're busy with Start to Piable. So, well, it's with your website, your handles, and <laughs> .com. <laughs> and is there anything in particular you're busy with that you know you're looking forward to or that people could look forward to expected from you in the near future? At Startapel, I think we've built a really good ecosystem for people that want to get into the startup ecosystem. So basically, my, our target in Startapeable, the people we are building content for, is the non-pedigree that we talked at the beginning. But we've built a lot of resources and tools for entrepreneurs, like starting entrepreneurs and wannabe entrepreneurs. But we now want to do things for people that want to work at startup because nobody has to be, a, not everyone has to be an entrepreneur. 
I think probably more, more people, there's more people that want to be just workers or employees for another company, some startups. So I want to build, we want to, where we have a few ideas and projects on how can we drive more people and convince more people on, hey, you're at university, instead of thinking about doing an internship in a bank, go do an internship in a fintech. So we're thinking in, in building a platform, like a job board and tools to teach people about how can they do a career in startups. Because in the end, I mean, the big, the, the big vision or mission that I have in Startup Alley is just bringing more Latin Americans into the startup world. I think it's a working in tech uh, right now is a great opportunity. So it's just, and there's and the people that are there actually are profiting a lot. They're getting super good salaries, uh, working for companies abroad. So it's like, how can just we bring more people here? And it's not only on the entrepreneur side, but also on people that just talent and want to work for others. Awesome. Thanks for that. We'll, we'll link uh, all those in the description later on. With that being said, Enzo, appreciate you taking the time to have this yes, podcast thank you with so us. Much. No, great the, guys. Thank you. It was a great chat. To the people tuning in, thanks for tuning in as always and for the great questions. To close it off, uh, you all know the drill by now. We'll have the podcast episodes released in uh, audio format on the website on Saturdays and it will be distributed to all podcasting platforms so you can share that or re-listen uh, while you work out or run uh, whatever. Thanks for tuning in. Shanluk, close it off. Yes, and this was once again Social Confos. See you next Tuesday at 9pm. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.